and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to a conversation we had with Maggie Nelson about her new book on freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. That's right. I've been a big Maggie Nelson fan for many years. I taught the Argonauts at UCLA, which was really a pleasure. So talking to her was really an exciting opportunity. Yes, I felt the same way, especially because I've known Maggie for a long time. And as I say in my introduction, she was my teacher. And I was very intimidated by her as well as just completely elucidated by her instruction. So it was exciting to get to talk to her about her work and uh, ask her questions and read her new book, which I've actually been thinking about a lot ever since. And um, I feel like it's one of those, like, get in your mind, like, slowly change your thought DNA kind of books. Yeah, I agree. And that's a very high compliment, which I think it deserves. Yeah, definitely. I think it changed my thinking on a some kind of structural level. So I recommend it. And I recommend this interview with Maggie. Let's get to it. Great. We're so excited to be speaking with the writer Maggie Nelson today. Maggie is the author of many books, most recently The Argonauts, which was a New York Times bestseller and the winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. Her other volumes include more works of criticism, such as The Art of Cruelty, A Reckoning, and Women, The New York School, and Other Two Abstractions, books of poetic prose and poetry, such as Bluettes and Jane, A Murder, the memoir, The Red Parts, Autobiography of a Trial, as well as three collections of poems. She is the winner of a 2016 MacArthur Genius Award and a recipient of many other awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, an NEA Fellowship, and an Andy Warhol Creative Capital Arts Writing Grant. Currently, she's a professor of English at USC, and having once been her student, I can attest that she's an incredibly thoughtful and challenging teacher who strikes through my vague prose and encouragement toward the heat in a sentence always made my writing better. She joins us today to talk about her latest book on freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. Written in the wake of the 2016 election, on freedom is an ambitious consideration of the complex knots of, quote, sovereignty and self-abandon, subjectivity and subjection, autonomy and dependency, end quote, that inevitably conjoin under the blanket of liberation. Focusing on four topics, art, sex, drugs, and the climate crisis, the book challenges the notion of freedom as a utopian state we might move toward untethered from our connection to the planet as well as each other. At the same time, it carves out a notable amount of space within realms many would be quick to deem as uniquely unfree, such as caretaking, addiction, conflict, and negative affect, even the ticking time bomb of global warming that renders so many of us feeling helpless and despondent. Here, we're asked to consider crucially what feeling free might have to do with feeling good, and what could be a better question than that. Welcome to the show, Maggie, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Kate. I'm so glad to be here. It's such a pleasure to talk, and to you in particular, because of our long knowing each other. (laughs) Thank you. Maggie, so maybe we should start with what brought you to the subject of freedom and why you decided to dedicate a book to it. Yeah, insanity, clearly. (laughs) It's a big subject. I I mean, it's kind of silly in terms of taking on something so broad, but I'd kind of done a similar project before with the book that Kate mentioned, The Art of Cruelty. 
I'd worked with a keyword before, you know, so I kind of knew a little bit how to go about it just in terms of, you know, staying alive and curious to everything that kind of mentioned it in different realms. And in the time of my writing, the word was, I mean, it's always been, especially in this country, as we know, it's always an activated word. It never hasn't been. And it's often a weaponized word and it never hasn't been. But it really grew out of the cruelty project because I began to think that the opposite of cruelty might not be kindness or something, but that cruelty had a particularly constricting quality where the indeterminacy of an event was getting squashed away such that nothing else seemed like it could happen save a cruelty. And I began to feel like, and a lot of thinkers, that degrees of inserting degrees of freedom or flipping constraints, you know, were actually maybe more the opposite of that kind of subjugation or cramping. So I got really interested in the concept and the word was everywhere, in particular in the art world and in conversations about sexual freedom and in climate and in conversations about addiction. And since those are four spheres of interest to me, I began to really track them. I mean, the word was absolutely everywhere and still is in terms of political freedom, which the book you know, kind of ceremoniously declines to take up as its central object, though it obviously haunts it. And then the pandemic and the discourse on freedom around that, you know, didn't, I'd really finished the book before that all started up, but it was an interesting and obviously familiar to me mobilization of the term. It wasn't the opposition of like freedom and care had been something I'd been writing about for five years. So it wasn't like a surprise to see that explode in a new context, because that tends to be how we talk. You kind of bring up in the introduction that the American call to freedom shifted under Trump and it became much more about like him as this figure, daddy figure, that anything he did would go, that people weren't embracing freedom as much as subjugation to an insane leader. And then at the same time, on the left, in more liberal circles, there was beginning to be this push for more constraint, like more forms of censorship, more forms of sexual censorship. And that must have kind of evolved over the whole writing process of the book, because I don't remember these things being so much at the fore in like 2015 or 2016. So did your idea of the project shift throughout the writing process of it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I say in the introduction that it's true. I don't think Trump, I mean, there's this Let me back up and say that James Baldwin quote in the introduction where he says, I've met very few people with a real desire to be free. And very few of these were Americans. You know, I mean, typical for Baldwin, it's kind of a, you know, a witty provocation. And then I kind of combine that with the political philosopher, Wendy Brown, who's been working for like the last 15 years or more on really whether or not, you know, we are like losing the appetite for self-governance that we nominally say is at the core of the American project and what we want, but that, I mean, her argument is more like that economic structures and neoliberalism are kind of hollowing out the desire to govern ourselves. So I think I took these two kind of questions about, you know, I kind of peeled back and thought, you know, what if the desire to self-govern were actually much more complicated, as Baldwin suggests, and not actually all that common, and something we actually had to kind of keep our eyes on the prize of, and even sometimes talk ourselves into when, as you're saying, you know, there are these flickers of desires for, you know, autocracy, fascism, or even what you said at the beginning when you listed those dyads, like about sovereignty and, you know, self-abandon. And I, I kind of thought, I mean, obviously post-World War II, there was a huge psychoanalytic industry about, you know, the mass psychology of fascism, you know, what happened psychologically to have people perform that kind of subjugation for a, a leader or a movement. 
I didn't want to rehearse that. I've learned from a lot of that stuff, but I didn't want to rehearse it. So I got more interested again in like looking at these kind of what Abby Telbrunel calls like about drugs, fractal interiority is like kind of finding full, like kind of lenses like art or sexual experience or experience of drugs to look through to see like where we go to the experience, maybe in sex or maybe with drugs or things, or even in art, you know, to be unmastered in certain ways. And then yet the experience of being so provokes enormous amounts of anxiety. And the question of what we want or what we want the human experience to be made up of becomes very confused and that that confusion isn't something to be decided per se, but it is something, as Wendy Brown would say, that if we lose sight of it entirely like in a political level, you know, at our peril, but that doesn't mean that there aren't these other spheres in which I don't think people regularly enjoy explorations into on mastery, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things, you know, that, and this again might be sort of too broad to address directly, but one of the things that you address in this book in terms of mastery and unmastery is divisions of power and how power plays into how we conceive of freedom. And I was curious about, there's a few starting points here in terms of how you think about power, but I was wondering if you could just sort of explain that a little bit in how, I think there's certain theorists that you start with, like Foucault, but, but like, what are some starting points about how you think about power in this book and how a reader could approach thinking about freedom and relative to power structures. I mean, I know that, you know, Foucault for some people and maybe for some listeners might become like with other theorists, a kind of boogeyman word for like complicated theory, you know, from the 20th century that they don't, it's like hard to read and maybe not even relevant anymore. But, you know, I clearly don't share that point of view. (laughs) And so I, you know, in Foucault, A lot of this project actually, as I say at one point, I think in the sex chapter, you know, a lot of this project really began with my own late 80s, early 90s enmeshment with Foucault as a student, you know, and in particular, the question of whether his analysis of power, how power moves and how power permeates, many people took him to mean that because power circulates everywhere, that means we're less free than we have imagined. And Foucault was at pains to actually say, that was not my argument, that cannot be attributed to me. The analysis of how power flows and shapeshifts and circulates is a study of how to be more free. <laughs> and that there is something about the a coagulated, calcified notion of where power is that actually, where we presume to always know that actually can impede everything from activism to feelings of freedom in our own lives. So I got really interested in that. The book, I wouldn't say power, certainly not political power, is one of its principal subjects. It comes up a lot using Foucault's, what I just described about this question about more or less free. It comes up a lot in the book, but if one wanted a real analysis of, you know, the powers of white supremacy or of even neoliberalism, I mean, whatever, you would look elsewhere for exactly that. Maybe we could move to the, just speaking of power and maybe more unexpected realms. In your chapter about art, I feel this push against censorship. I mean, both self-censorship of the artist and then also censorship of art from all sides, not just from the right. And which I completely share the agreement with and feel like the proper realm for digestion of art is criticism. Like that if you have a problem with a piece of work, like it's good to criticize it and think it through as opposed to abolish it and keep it hidden or destroy it. 
At the same time, I feel like where it gets more complicated, at least for me, and I just questioned and thought about this, is when art moves from a critical realm to one of commodity. So like you cite this Dana Schutz painting that everyone, you know, that people thought need to be removed from the Whitney show and because it depicted Emmett Till in ways that people found offensive. And I thought it was really interesting that Dana Schutz immediately came back with like, this painting is not for sale as though that somehow redeemed it. And not that I think it does, but I think it points to this tension of the fact that it's like, you know, in the abstract, it's fine to consider all these works from a critical stance. There shouldn't, what would be off limits that we could see or look at or watch. But then when it comes to them being objects for sale, does that complicate that argument at all for you? When art, you know, when it moves from the realm of criticality into capitalism, I don't see art and commodity like in any kind of fixed relationship. You know, I just think of it as more fluid than that. And I understand, certainly. I mean, I think that Schutz was responding to parts of Hannah Black's letter about it, saying that the image had been put up for, Black had said, you know, for profit and for fun. That kind of language that which, you know, it means interesting, profit and fun. They're kind of like, I think a lot of that conversation can be assignations to the artist or to the system or of, of motivations or even of commercial material knowledge that sometimes we don't even have and that we're postulating, you know. But as I read about in the chapter, you know, art often starts as junk, may have a commodified period, they may return to being junk. Most art that gets made, as probably all of us know in the world, doesn't sell. Very little art operates on the level of sale on the way that we think about market value for labor, you know, in terms of people's working throughout a life, even a piece of art that sells for like a $40,000 painting probably had, you know, 30 years of unpaid labor before that painting. Not all the time. There are rarities. Anyway, my point is that I don't, I'm all for, and I read and I'm interested in material critiques of the art world, such as it is. I think those are utterly valuable. And there are many aspects of the art world that are farcical to nefarious to just to all kinds of things. But I really wanted this chapter, kind of like the sex chapter, I really wanted to kind of just not invalidate or in any way deny the value of those readings. But I just wanted to kind of, I imagined in my mind is like moving the abacus bead just like more towards the side of the creating person of like the artist who really doesn't know about the commodity status of the work. Some artists know, but few know. And I just wanted to, again, the corollary with the sex chapter was to kind of move all these conversations about sex and power, you know, back to the experiencing body of sex, you know, like the sexual subject who has a variety of forms of physical and emotional and, you know, spiritual, whatever experience in a land of, you know, eros or something, you know, eros and touch. So that's where the fulcrum of the book, you know, moves to in those chapters. It doesn't, I think it would be dicey territory to get into like, it's okay to censor some pieces of art if they can be proved to be a commodity with a capital C or if they're worth this much money. I would not traffic in that at all. It just doesn't seem commensurate to me with the history of art in terms of pieces that, again, most arts move between being having a valued status and then having a, a status of like, where are we going to put this? You know, should we put it out in the yard for the you know rats to eat? Like, it really does. If you live with an artist, believe me, you know this. Like, it really does move between those places. So I would, and certainly when you get into centuries of time, that becomes even more apparent. Maybe we could also talk about 
the idea of a reparative versus paranoid reading, because I feel like that kind of speaks almost to the point here, which is like, it's not, you're not rooting out one central paranoid of what a painting's value would be or any of these things. And um, so how was that idea by Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick so important to you in the writing of this book? So these terms, reparative and paranoid reading that you're talking about, Kate, you know, were part of this Sedgwick essay that has been very important to me and to many others, and is kind of at the core of a lot of I think thinking about criticism and art today, you know, and I think Sedgwick was pointing out what she called this paranoid approach, which she was contrasting to the reparative approach. This is a complicated topic. <laughs> See how, how much I want to explain it. But I think that to your point about art and commodity, you know, a paranoid approach often has a reductive approach. Like you're not going to get this past me. I know what this thing really is. You said this is this, you know, luminous piece of art, but I know it's a commodity that sold for X, Y, or Z. You know, there's a kind of, it really is this. Whereas I wouldn't even call it necessarily reparative, but that the allowing for something to be more than one thing at once, like it may be that commodity and it may also offer the spiritual experience. And then tomorrow it may also be like a great, you know, roof for a shelter or something like the painting moves. It's not reducible. And paranoia, as she says, like a logic of paranoia often has a particular relationship to knowledge where it wants to know what something is. It wants to know what it was yesterday, what it is today and what it'll do tomorrow. It forecloses meaning, you know, importantly, with Sedgwick's notion of the paranoid and the reparative, whereas the reparative, whether it's the viewer or the maker of art, is in some ways going, well, this is complicated, but in some ways has to do with the reconstitution of something that might be hostile to you as something that might be of use. Interestingly, Sedgwick, people often think, oh, she argued for the reparative over the paranoid, when in fact her essay is doesn't pose them as things that exist without each other. She poses them more in a kind of seesaw and she feels like criticism has been very heavily weighted towards the paranoid and she's trying to bring focus to what reparative might be. But as she says, and as my book says, you don't destroy the paranoid. Back, the idea that there's the bad thing you could just as paranoid, <laughs> you know, it furthers the cycle. So in a certain sense, I think, you know, she taught me to take from different thinkers, some of whom are paranoid, some of whom are imperative, some are some combination. And as she says, a lot of artists tend to be very paranoid people who by a kind of stroke of magic end up, because they need to make reparative work for themselves, it ends up often being reparative work for others. And then that's when you get into a thing of like, that's so weird. Jack Smith seems so paranoid. Why do I feel so liberated by his work? Like that would be a, you know, a faulty, that would be like a misunderstanding of the way that these things are always in relation. And sometimes, again, with like the Jack Smith example, which she uses, you know, often in the same person and the same place. And so it becomes, you know, an expansive way of reading art to not imagine that there's a homogeneity of motivation, expression, experience that others have of the same piece, you know, but allowing for there to be a lot of play in each of those places. Thank you for that explanation of of an otherwise very complicated subject. I Um, did a great job, but you know. No, no, I think you did, partly because it truly is really difficult to explain what Sedgwick means eventually in terms of, maybe in terms of practice in that essay. So maybe we can talk about sex a little bit since it came up already. And so one of your chapters here is dedicated to sex and you are thinking about freedom as it relates to sex and more particularly the Me Too movement. What do you see as the complication there in terms of how we think about freedom and how we lately have been talking about sex in the popular culture? 
Yeah, I think it's complicated because I don't personally think of the chapter as really having a whole lot to say about the Me Too movement, which is dedicated on, you know, bringing attention to and hopefully bringing a diminishment of, you know, harassment and assault, you know, sexual harassment and assault in all spheres. And that I'm, you know, fully in support of. So I think that the chapter is more doing the work of like what a cultural critic who kind of stands back, actually a Foucauldian critic, to be honest, who, you know, Foucault's big contribution to especially writing about the Victorian period was to say, huh, everyone says the Victorians were so repressed, but they seem to have produced an enormous discourse about sexuality <laughs> under the name of repression. He called that the repressive hypothesis, you know, like we, they hypothesized it was so, but in fact, we produced. And so I think but with that cultural critic lens, you look at what kind of discourse are we producing? What kind of stories seem to be, you know, do we feel most comfortable telling or is there most space for? And I think in that sense, I kind of noted that, you know, on the one hand, it has been thrilling to read so many stories of raw rejection of the not good enough conditions, you know, specifically for women that still are exist in every sphere. And at the same time, knowing as I do know as a kind of loose scholar of gender, sexuality, and sex, that there's a paucity of stories, especially first-person stories, about sexual desire and sexual pleasure from women and in some instances from queer women insofar as there's a tension about whether or not sexuality, which, you know, Jacqueline Rose or another psychoanalyst would call lawless, you know, like how it can be reconciled with some of the regulatory changes that we'd like to see in different arenas. And it's dogged the question of like, you know, is there female pornography? What does it sound like? What does it look like? Is there feminist pornography? Does feminist pornography have to not be straight? Does feminist pornography have to, you know, there are all these questions, you know, can there be phallophilic, you know, I'm trying to think of the word, not phallocentric, really more like phallophilic, like, you know, what someone in my chapter calls love of the cock more colloquially, you know, in this writing without it being cast as politically suspect, you know, so all these questions have remained of interest to me. And I do think that there remains quite a bit of taboo in and around those stories. And again, it's a tricky chapter in that there is not any sense in my mind that I wanted these stories to replace the stories of complaint at all. My question was more about can we make sure that we add them? <laughs> and what are the impediments to adding them? Because the impediments are real and they do have to do with this question of sexual subjectivity, which means giving up on fantasies of innocence or lawfulness at all times. And I think that that's a difficulty for feminism now and, and it matters to me a lot. So I wanted to write into that. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Maggie Nelson, author of On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Rachel Greenwald-Smith on the line with us today. Her new book is called On Compromise, Art, Politics, and the Fate of an American Ideal. And Rachel is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Rachel, what book are you going to recommend? I would like to recommend a book called Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism by my friend Heather Berg, who teaches in the Women and Gender Studies Department at Washington University in St. Louis. And mm, hey. um, 
is an incredible crossover work. It's published on an academic press, but it's been read eagerly by audiences that aren't academics, and it's very readable for people who aren't academics. The argument of the book is really interesting because it basically suggests that rather than seeing people who are working in the porn industry as being sort of on the outliers of the work experience of most Americans, that we should actually think of the both the kinds of work that porn workers are doing and also the forms of resistance that they're engaging in as being at the center of what work looks like today for Americans. So Berg argues that we can see forms of work like gig work and other forms of sort of ad hoc labor, flexibility, the, the demand that we find pleasure in our work, all sorts of sort of mainstream truisms about work culture in America in sort of concentrated in porn work. And that similarly, we can see maybe more visibly in some of the tactics that porn workers have used to resist exploitative work conditions, some of the future for what anti-exploitation or anti-work forms of action could look like. So it's an incredibly, I think it's one of the most interesting books on labor and capitalism to be written in the past, uh, I don't know, decade at least. And I highly wow. recommend it to readers. That sounds really interesting. Can you tell us the title again and the author? Yes. It's called Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. And the author is Heather Burke. That sounds really good. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks. Rachel Greenwald-Smith, her new book is called On Compromise, Art, Politics, and the Fate of an American Ideal. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Maggie Nelson, author of On Freedom. Something that I really appreciated in that chapter is kind of not you know, back to the reparative and paranoid reading is not always having to um, necessarily search every single desire and wonder if it was programmed by someone else and and have that mean it was inauthentic or, you know, having too much time just perseverating on that as opposed to almost just moving through it and saying, okay, like, who cares where it comes from necessarily? I thought that was very freeing, actually, speaking of freedom. I wanted to ask about this differentiation that you bring up in that chapter on freedom from and freedom to. And some like, you know, critics of sex positivity say that freedom to, freedom to do, you know, any number of different things sexually and experience dwarfs freedom from. And I'm curious, and it doesn't seem, and in like in this context, that seems like, hmm, I don't, you know, difficult to, to parse out in other like climate related contexts that seems like, oh, that's a really critical distinction and a possibly a useful one. But here, I don't know, and I'd be curious to, to for you to talk about it and how you feel about it. Yeah, I mean, the freedom from freedom to conversation, which is a longstanding philosophical question about positive and negative freedom, you know, it's often called, you know, and, um, you know, freedom from something like in this realm of sexual freedom would be like, you know, freedom from draconian laws that would make, uh, you know, that would make illegal reproductive freedoms, you know, that would make it illegal for women to be in the public sphere, it would make illegal certain, you know, you know, queer sex, I mean, a million things. So you have to be, you know, obviously it makes sense that to be able to be free to choose your relations, with other consensual adults 
you need to be free from, you know, laws that will put you in prison for those choices, right? So they obviously have a, um, you can't separate them from each other, which I think is a, a fairly given point. I do think, however, that that there's a kind of difficulty where when we get familiar with how deep all of our negative liberties might be, and, and when we kind of realize on a more existential level that like every choice made in the realm of sex is a choice of, like all choices, uh, has constrictions built into it, you know? And, and that once you realize that, there can be a kind of sense of like, a kind of going through the looking glass of like, wow, I guess I'm not really free at all. You know, I guess all my my desires are even conscripted or I guess my choices are conscripted or all this can be this kind of, and I think that that mode of thinking can be really useful at a certain point in like one's development. But I think that if you get stuck there, when in fact you do have a lot of freedoms too, <laughs> and if the freedoms too, as I just mentioned, have impediments to thinking about them because they might, introduce elements of of risk to take on being that person who has freedoms too and what that means then I think we can just get into a habit of mind that perhaps less free than we think you know like perhaps we constrict our you know certain freedoms unnecessarily that doesn't mean that freedoms too don't come with you know particular exposures and vulnerabilities they do you know and they and they and so as I say in the chapter part of our work is to diminish I say like you know no one wants the cost of a sexual encounter to be, you know, a life-shattering assault or a, you know, problematic to fatal disease or a life, you know, altering pregnancy that's not wanted. These are all things that, that we can work to diminish their possibility. I don't know that they can be extinguished as possibilities. So there's some kind of reckoning with that, which introduces kind of notions of harm reduction, which I think as we've seen with the pandemic or whatnot are really undervalued and often decarceral modes of thinking that we're not as familiar with in this country, especially, but that I think we urgently need to become more familiar with. There's a part at the very beginning of this book where you talk about, there's a way of building freedoms and unfreedoms upon a we, quote unquote, we as in the, the pronoun, instead of an I. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and the distinction that you're, that you're making there, as well as like who who do we talk about when we're talking about the we versus the I? Who's the we at, at large? Also, This is complicated thought. I'm not sure I'll be able to spin out for you, but I'll give it a try, which is that, and, I, and it's a thought that I, I want to try and not like express irritation about because I know where it's coming from. But I feel like especially in the pandemic, we've seen so much call against like, you know, like, hey, we're all obsessed with our individual freedom. We need to start thinking about a communal freedom. We need to start thinking about the collective. Okay. All that's, in my opinion, you know, utterly true. Right. But the motion that my book wanted to make at the start was to get kind of under the skin of that distinction, which to me is a kind of, you know, as a kind of lay Buddhist, it's like a faulty distinction to begin with. And that the eye is actually an illusion from the start. <laughs> so there isn't really individual freedom. There's the illusion of individual freedom. And there's what that, what that illusion, what work it does for you, you know, and it does work. It does work for people. I don't mean work like it works, like it functions well. I mean, it functions, you know, like it, it does provide some things. So I think that un, instead of saying, which I kind of have the ta Coates article, which I, you know, is, which I agree with, and is very you know, inform quickly informative where he kind of says there's like white freedom, which is like individual freedom. And then he's calling black freedom, which is like the sense of a duty and obligation to a collective. I kind of start off by 
more what I'm describing, saying like, I take as, as a given that all freedom is a, is a we freedom, whether or not it says don't tread on me, <laughs> because the line don't tread on me postulates a you to whom I'm talking, <laughs> and my freedom depends upon a conversation, right? Like, I'm telling you don't do this to me, which kind of comes up again with this feminist slogan, my body has nothing to do with your body, when in fact our bodies have everything to do with each other's bodies, so that there's that tension between like, even in our moments of liberation, wanting to get away from interrelation. And so my book just basically says, it is a way, the, the, the fiction of the individual freedom and the I does work for, it, it, it's not to be, um, it can't be dispensed with entirely because as I talk about with the Coates essay, when he's talking about like Michael Jackson and he's kind of saying like, well, if only he'd known that he was like bringing a whole demographic down with him with this self-destructive behavior, like that in my experience does not work as a kind of call to a collective obligation. It, it, it actually can cause a lot of pain. And I'm not saying that Coates is advocating something that like, you know, does harm or anything. I'm just saying my, I became intellectually and, you know, kind of spiritually interested in like, which I think we're all interested right now is like, what then is the call if it's not hectoring each other about joining this obligated state? And I think for that reason, I had to look to, you know, like in the drug chapter, you know, like I think recovery circles have a really, really interesting and kind of underutilized idea about, you know, getting clean for oneself, not getting clean because your mother's crying and begging you not to use, like the, or not getting clean because there's an intervention circle where everybody tells you how much you've hurt them and that if you don't do X, Y, or Z, you're going to be excommunicated from the family. Like none of that stuff tends to work. And so there's a really, um, but how then to um, not reify a kind of autocratic individual I while also working from a kind of self-first model is really fascinating to me. And there are technologies, like, as I've mentioned before, like, I think Buddhist technology is, like, a really fascinating ones where they do work with kind of self-first while also not reifying self and ego. I, I think, and I think recovery programs do something really similar. And I think that, I'm not making any sense, but that was where I was rooting my investigation of we and I vis-a-vis uh, -vis obligation and freedom. Some of the Buddhist thought that's in the book, speaking of these kind of ideas that seem conflicting, is like once you, in Buddhism basically, once you accept the limitations of being human, that, you know, suffering that is inescapable, that there is no escape from lots of different feelings, that's the path to liberation, is, is, accepting, is accepting the limitation of the form of being a human being is how you move um, towards freedom and that sitting still and trying to just even, even the act of meditating seems like some um, practice of that as well. Um, and, you know, also you bring up here the idea of radical compassion. And I, and I guess that was so compelling to me because with this back to power and this, you know, what would, and, and the book's interest in abolition and like, what would we do with people if we didn't lock them up and, even a figure like Michael Jackson, you know, how can not making him not just discounting certain people and making them out to be monsters and, and thinking it's that simple. And um, I, I do think that 
around kind of dishing out punishment or the desire for punishment or for reckoning with wrongdoing, sometimes uh, radical compassion is not very much a part of this conversation. And it's like probably one of the most difficult things um, to practice. So I'm wondering like what you think that looks like out in the world and then in your own life, you know, how you experience it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, while you were talking, I was thinking about there are these really great little videos that Dean Spade and Tourmaline did that kind of explaining principles of prison abolition. You can find them on like, they were part of a Barnard conference for research on women. Um, and they're talking about certain terms that Ruth Gil, um, uh, Gilmore Wilson has kind of, or phrases have kind of has put, you know, amongst other prison abolitionists have, have put, you know, into the mix. And, and I think in two of them that they talk about in those little videos, Dean Spade and Tourmaline that I actually kind of, kept on my desk with me the whole time of writing. One of them is no one is innocent and the other one is no one is disposable. And I just think that those are, they're really key for like abolitionist logic because if you say no one's innocent, it means that there aren't like guilty people over here, innocent people over here. Um, And it acknowledges that you acknowledge your own capacity to do harm um, and that you have, you know, your, you know, speech and actions may have caused harm to others and that you're not, you don't stand apart and like you don't psych, you don't perform the kind of psychoanalytic projection activity of taking all you know of holding all ethical goodness on you and putting all ethical badness on somebody else because that is cultural logic you know so that's no one is innocent no one's disposable you know I, I don't know I take that really seriously like if no one's disposable but you also don't want to be like you know Betsy DeVos like doing her kind of you know, men's rights things with like Title IX policy or something. But at the same time, you know, as Jennifer Doyle has said, like in her book on Title IX stuff, like it should be hard to take, to lock people up. Like it should be hard to take away people's liberty. Like that should be hard. And if we've lost sight of why it should be, then we're losing sight of quite a bit. And I think recognizing that, you know, no one is disposable, which kind of is a corollary to like, no one should live in a cage, which is what the prison industrial complex offers as a solution then you're going to have, you're going to be embarking on a much more creative and much more challenging pursuit than if you could imagine some people as guilty and some as innocent, some people as disposable and some people as not. It's very challenging. You ask what it looks like in my daily life. I don't like do it right all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm full of, you know, ethically righteous, vengeful thoughts about, about others. Um, I'm full of, like I say, as I say at the end of the sex chapter, I say that, you know, a lot of these things are big Cohen's like the urge to throw, I say like a harmful asshole off a cliff. And then the urge to exhibit, you know, radical compassion to everyone we meet is like, these are problems, right? They're, but there are also problems. I'm sorry, now I'm just going on and on, but there are also problems that in previous books of mine, I grappled more with like the death penalty and the criminal justice system vis-a-vis the murder of my aunt. And I think was more interested at that point in like death penalty, anti-death penalty activism. And I think, you know, what was a, a big lesson for me from that activism was that, you know, you, you have to get in between, you know, your, you have to get in between your emotional reactionary response and then policy you want to govern people who, as Mariam Kaba says, like, never did anything to you and don't have anything to do with you. Like, you have to get in between that response to think about what kinds of policies are most, you know, makes the, make the most sense and are the most equitable and just, you know. And all that's really important to me. This book has nothing to do with, like, those spheres in a, it's not a legalistic book. It's not about policy. It's not about any of those things. But I think 
infusing our lives with those principles is, you know, one of my happiest and most, um, you know, biggest challenges. It certainly begs all those questions, you know. It's interesting to hear that you had these phrases sort of with you as you were writing the book. And the book brings in, you know, as did, as do all of your other books, so many other sources, so many other writers, so many other theorists. I was wondering if you could talk about what you had felt in this very big subject, as you mentioned, what you had felt as really grounding sort of uh, writers or theories that you came back to again and again as you were moving through your ideas about what freedom is or how to think about it. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of all over the book, um, but certainly... Certainly, James Baldwin and and Hannah Arendt, who also had a kind of um, public disagreements about certain things, um, I, I thought that was all very interesting, um, and were and both were guides to me. Um, Fred Moten and Stefan O'Harney's book, The Undercommons, and and Moten's work in particular, just more generally, is all over this book and is really important to me, and and kind of comes up all throughout, but comes up really loudly in the last chapter, Riding the Blinds, which is a phrase taken from Harney and Moten's The Undercommons. It's how they talk about using ideas. And I think it's important to me that, I mean, I'm sure in kind of mainstream reviews of this book, it, this point won't be, uh, it'll be missed and, and it might not be what like uh, some people are interested in with reading a book, but I'm very interested in like when Moten and Harney talk about offering out uh, phrases or ideas as like tools. And in their case, they offer out like the surround, writing the blinds, the undercommons. They offer out these things and they kind of say, like, what do you, here's what we kind of think. What do you want to do with it? You know, that kind of thinking together is super important to me. And it's kind of all I really want to do um, in this book. And so whether it's like activating a no one is disposable mindset and just making people think about how might this apply here or there, you know, that's, it doesn't have like a strong argument saying like, I've discovered what true freedom is, why we should want it. And here's how to get it. Like, that's just not interesting to me as a, I mean, I, and again, I like books that do that. I learn from them, but it's not what I want to do. So the Harney and Moten, their modality of that kind of idea offering in a really loose um, and generous and, and generative fashion is super important to me. Um, the Wendy Brown and Judith Butler um, are all over this book. Timothy Morton plays a big role, uh, eco-theorist in the climate chapter. I kind of am loosely talking to him all throughout because he's somebody, like a lot of climate writers, who've kind of veered off the grid and kind of produced more almost like shamanistic texts of like taking you through what he calls like the darknesses of climate change, like uh, the sweet darkness, the uncanny darkness, like these kind of, like kind of and, and I actually, even though I think it's like easy to mock in a certain way, I actually do think that the climate crisis requires a kind of um, progressive immersion so that you can come out less paralyzed. I think most people stop at the first darkness and feel so horrified and scared and impotent that the only choice is to just return to life such as it is because it, the scale is so great and our per individual actions are so small. So I think that Morton was important to me for kind of modeling what, what that kind of uh, journey might look like. And then that chapter tries to take a similar journey um, 
And then there are just patron saints all over, Sylvia Rivera and this great quote from her about sexual liberation and its victories, but how she still got shit. <laughs> like it was really, there were just all kinds of phrases and people that I took as uh, kind of guiding spirits all throughout. I don't know why I feel compelled to close with the climate crisis, but it, it is what closes the book. And it is, there seems to be so little room for the reality of it. It's something that we're now locked into. It's the fate of it can sometimes just seem so overwhelming and right. And the ball keeps rolling and no one's doing anything. And it, it does seem like something where you wish you had more freedom in regards to action and you don't. Um, so, and, and you've described just, and, and right. And so it leads to a lot of avoidance, not really wanting to read or learn about it too much. And you describe like the visceral reaction you had, negative reactions you had in your body reading the information about climate, really pondering like, what if what if the end date was 2030? Um, that kind of thing. So I guess since that's something we're all experiencing mm -hmm. just continuously, um, can you speak to where you find this, this space in that predicament that we're all in? Yeah, I mean, I guess when you're talking, I think about going back to Eve Sedgwick, who was, you know, so, I mean, who's also all over this book. And, you know, she was a literal teacher of mine. And so I, you know, I learned so much from Eve. But, you know, she had this had this great line where she's talking about someone who'd said like, oh, that's merely ameliorative. Like it just, you know, and she said, why is amelioration so mere? You know, why is why is the idea of making something a, a little bit worse? So why is that so offensive? You know, like I, she's like, I don't think amelioration's mere. Like, I think it's a big deal. Like, and I... You know, in my own life, I often think about like anxiety or things. I think, well, I'm not trying to ab abolish it. It's, but it's like, what if it were on a you know, scale of 10? What if I got it back to a six? Like that would be better, right? I'd feel better. So I think, you know, that doomed, not doomed logic about the climate is one of the things that's just really trapped us. And I think the David Wallace Wells quote I have in my chapter where he says, you know, it's just like, the more and the sooner we can stop pumping carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the better, you know, the less suffering there will be, period. You know, like it's it's not like, a, and there are of course worries about runaway acceleration. There are worries about, you know, what happens post two degrees. But the point is, is that like, you know, moving past that dichotomy of, as he says, fucked or not fucked, produces a sense of freedom. I think it does for me, which just says, okay, well then I know what to do now. What to do now is we, you know, um, is like any decarbonization is better than no decarbonization. And we have to do that, you know, we have to do it. So, and I think it's useful to be like, yes, it might, like, I know it produces urgency to have this or else it might be too late. But since many people already, we've already blown by, you know, we're blowing by 1.5 as a, you know, now when we're gonna move to two as baked in already, but like the, but, but there's no, you don't want it to be five. So like, there's just no sense in feeling like, oh, because we blew by this target, you know, it just, so I think that, actually letting go of that kind of binaristic thinking and allowing for amelioration will produce a grounds for more action and less paralysis. Thanks for that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Maggie, for speaking with us today. I hope this is all good for radio, radio ready. <laughs> it's pretty heady, but it's, but it's fun to talk. You guys are really smart and involved. And so I really appreciate it. You know. Thank you again. We've been speaking with Maggie Nelson. Her new book is On Freedom. Four songs of care and constraint. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. 
Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.